Why not be alive like right now? Why not experience everything that you have right now as, as if it's everything, as if it's full, rather than be focusing on what more that you need? I believe that the opposite of depression, it's not happiness, it's purpose. I believe that every single person has something unique to contribute to the world. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Don't Keep Your Day Job is about figuring out what it is that you were here to do in this world that only you can do to make the world more whole, more beautiful, and to stop selling yourself short, and to stop sitting it out, and to figure out how to take this thing you love, whether it's art or music or screenwriting or dance or baking, and how do you weave this thing that you love into a life that you get to contribute, that you get to do what you love full time, because it's not just about business, it's about contribution, it's about meaning. That is what we seek, that is what we truly want, and you absolutely are here to serve the world, and I want to help you figure out just how much value you have inside of you. And every single week, we're going to be talking to people who have something to add to help you get out of your own way, to help you be more successful, to help you be the truest expression of you. My name is Kathy Heller. I'm so glad that you're here. Let's dive in. Thanks to Glossier for supporting Don't Keep Your Day Job. You probably know Glossier for their skincare products and for popularizing the glowy, dewy skin look. Glossier also creates makeup products, body care products, and fragrance. For a limited time, new customers get 10% off your first three-step routine order for any skin type by visiting glossier.com slash podcast slash dream job. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So I don't know if you've been following me on Instagram, but what are you doing? Come on over. Come on over. Today is day nine of the 12 days of giveaways. I have given away Vera Wang champagne flutes, a Marc Jacobs bag. I have given away a yummy uh, spiritual gangster sweatshirt. I've given away these adorable Ugg boots. I've given away fun stuff and none of this is sponsored stuff. This is just me buying you guys things that I would buy for me or for one of my best friends. So there you go. Because we are family. No, but seriously, you guys are one of the greatest, greatest gifts of this lifetime for me. I so, so, so honor and cherish this, that we connect in this way. And that I've gotten to know so many of you through email and DMs and just through my program. Speaking of my programs, come on over to my Instagram today at kathy.heller, Kathy's with a C because it is day nine of the giveaways and day nine is pretty darn cool. I'm giving away three things. First of all, I'm giving away a thousand dollars to made to do this, which we don't usually do this. So I'm giving away a thousand dollars to anyone who wants to be in the made to do this program. If you're not on the wait list, get on the wait list, made to do this.com because it will sell out. And did you hear who our guest experts are going to be? Our guest experts for the next round of made to do this are going to be Rachel Platten, Candace Nelson, and Jenna Kutcher. So that means that if you're in Made to Do This, you will be a part of each of those private Zoom calls where we will have an in-depth, awesome, intimate conversation, and there'll be time for Q&As with each of those amazing women. Also, if you get on the wait list, madetodothis.com, and you do that ASAP, there is an exclusive offer to those of you who get on the wait list before Christmas Eve and it just might include getting to attend a 2021 retreat. I am doing January 3rd, Sunday evening, a virtual retreat just for those people who 
check out that wait list. It is a free bonus offer. You'll find out all about it. Go to madetodothis.com. We will be doing a dance party, a breathwork session. We'll be setting intentions to really, truly step into the best year of our life where we claim the gifts and we claim the divine, beautiful, magnificent life that the creator of the universe intended for us. And so I'm looking forward to that so much. I also know that Made to Do This, the next round is going to be unbelievable and I cannot wait. I cannot wait for it. So go to madetodothis.com. And in the meantime, go to my Instagram at kathy.heller because there's three prizes. One is going to be $1,000 off to Made to Do This. The second is going to be a beautiful set of a Voluspa candle and a diffuser to make your room smell delicious. And thirdly, if that wasn't enough, a Postmates gift card, $200 to Postmates so that you can go ahead and treat your family and friends or whoever you're going to be with, even if it's just you, to celebrate a little bit of this holiday and to support our local restaurants and order some takeout. Again, this is not sponsored. This is just something that I felt like doing. So get in on the giveaway. Go to kathy.heller on Instagram and I'll see you guys over there. DM me if you have any questions or thoughts or you just want to say hi. I am always in my DMs. All right. So today... Such an awesome guest. Ryan Holiday is back. He, if you don't know, he's a writer, a best-selling author. He has amazing books like The Obstacles the Way, Ego is the Enemy, Conspiracy, Stillness is the Key. And his latest book is another piece of art. It's called Lives of the Stoics, The Art of Living from Zeno to Marcus Aurelius. It's an exploration into the lives of the Stoics and what the ancients can teach us about happiness, success, resilience, and the timeless Stoic virtues of courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. It's so interesting to me how these legendary figures went through such challenging times and they navigated the hand that they were dealt. And this conversation could not have come at a better moment in our season. Ryan has been here once before. And if you haven't heard that episode, you can go check that out after you listen to this one because there's some great stuff in there as well. But it's always such a joy to talk to him. And this time he brought even more important insights that we can carry with us. Without further ado, please welcome the one and only Ryan Holiday. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for coming back. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me again. So you wrote another awesome book. You must feel passionately about this topic. You talked about it last time you were here a little bit, but for you to write yet another book, this is obviously stirring inside of you. And I know it has been for a while, but why did you feel compelled to write a whole book on this? Yeah. I mean, look, if you don't feel strongly about something, do not write a book about it because a a book will certainly test your, both your faith and interest (laughs) and, you know, point of view on a topic. I think for me, the the reason I'm, I'm so interested in the Stoics and sort of what the premise of lives of the Stoics is about is that, you know, a lot of people think philosophy is this thing that you talk about, even that maybe you read books about. And that's certainly true to a degree, but what I really wanted to do in this book is look at how these ideas translated into the lives of the people who believed and wrote about these things. So it's really a set of biographies. You know, how does one live a philosophical life? What does a philosophical life look like? And how do these ideas help us in our most sort of difficult or trying moments? And, and you know, 2020 being a good example of this, I mean, Marcus Aurelius, the most famous of the Stoics, was writing during the Antonine Plague, which would make COVID look like a walk in the park. And wow. you know, Seneca spends close to a decade of his life in exile, you know, which which again makes a lockdown look look like a walk right. in the park. So, right. so the Stoics were experiencing real difficult things in the real world. And that's what the philosophy is actually about. How did you get turned on to this in the first place? I was in college 
And so you might think, oh, I learned about it in college. No, I, ironically, and this is sort of my point, <laughs> I was taking philosophy classes and nowhere did the Stoics come up at all. It was, I, I went to this conference and I, I just asked for a book recommendation from the, the speaker afterwards and, and ended up sort of going down this, this rabbit hole that changed my life. How did it change your life first? What was the first change? Well, you know, I'm, I was 19 or 20 years old and I remember I was going through a breakup, you know, I'm sort of adjusting to life, you know, living by myself, trying to figure out what I want to do in the world. And I think, I think the parts that hit me most about stoicism at that age, I mean, as I've read and studied it, you sort of get different things out of it as you get older. But I think the thing that hit me the most was this idea that like, look, like you have to be in control of your emotions, not your emotions being in control of you. And so I think uh, the, the elements of sort of discipline and self-control and rationality, these were things that I really, really needed to hear at that age, especially with, with what I was going through. I just came back from six days with Joe Dispenza. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm such a seeker of all of this. I was also a religion philosophy major in college, been on this road a long time. But this six days, Ryan, I have to tell you, the way that he breaks it down, like this program that's just running and it's this memorized set of emotions. And the thing is that people like you and me, I don't even know if I should lump myself into that category, but like I studied at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center for four years. Like I think I'm doing all the things and I'm a hot mess. Like I come back from this thing and I know too much to go back. And yet I keep choosing these memorized emotions. How on earth, even once we know that we're letting it run the show, right? There's such an addiction to it. There's such a payoff sure. in the suffering and it's so scary to let it go. How do you actually find yourself letting it go? Yeah. I mean, Seneca talks about how, he, you know, he says no amount of philosophy, you know, sort of replaces your baser responses. So he says, you know, right. someone jumps out from behind a corner, that'll scare you. If someone throws cold water on you, you'll shiver. You know, we have our sort of immediate responses, but the psychologist Viktor Frankl talks about how, so sort of between the stimulus and the response, like between that, you have a little bit of room to play with. And I think what philosophy is, what the training is, what the thing you were just talking about is doing is how do you, how do you get a little bit better as you go? So I think people often think, oh, I read this book, I went on this meditation retreat, I saw this documentary, I, you know, I did this research, now I'm magically transformed, and I'll just never do that again. And that's not, I mean, look, if knowledge was the key, no one would be overweight, right, right. You know, no one would ever be <laughs> depressed, no one would ever fail, like, it's obviously not just knowledge, it, the Stokes talk about how it's knowledge plus training, plus experience. And over a lifetime, one hopes that you get better at it. And I think 2020 has obviously been a rough year across the board, but the good part is it has been training. You know what I mean? It's forced us to wrestle with these things that are really easy to keep sort of as abstractions. You know, it's easy to say, hey, you don't control what happens, you control how you respond. Okay, but what do you do when your livelihood gets shut down? You can't travel, you can't see your family, the news is universally horrible. Like, what happens when you really are in the deep? Now you actually have to live by that, right? And so I think what the Stoics were, were talking about is you do this reading, you do this training, you have these mentors who help you, 
And then you have to let the adversity of life actually train you on those things and you get better the more reps you have. Yes. And I think that is such a beautiful take on this time, which is, it's such a major pattern interrupt. And it's like forcing us to look at like, how the hell have we been living our life? And I don't think there is a going back. I don't think anyone really is like, let's make it go back to exactly how it was when I was numbing out in every possible way that I could. It's uncomfortable, but maybe we needed this moment in some way. Well, I was writing about that this morning. We have, you know, you'll hear people go when things go back to normal. And so first off, normal is what caused this. So I'm not sure that's why we want to go back to that. But second, I would defy you to find me a normal decade in American history. Right. You know, like find, find a normal year. Like we go, oh, but this is so weird. We have a pandemic and we have this sort of civil unrest and the, the civil rights crisis. It's like in 1968, which was the sort of height of racial tension in America, there was terrorist bombings. There was also an influenza pandemic that killed a million people globally. So you don't even remember that. So it's like, what's normal? The thing that's so normal that we don't even remember or these like sort of moments of peace and prosperity that we take for granted. And so I think we sort of look at like what our grandparents went through. We'll go like, wow, like imagine living through the depression or imagine living through World War II. And it's like, this is an event on par with those things. I mean, it's it's better in some ways. It's also worse in other ways, right? So this is an event on par with those things. And like, if you were someone who at the beginning of the year was a little shaky in your confidence or you were unsure of things, it's like, if you're still alive right now, you made it. <laughs> like, you know, you got through one of the most difficult moments in American history, perhaps world history. Like you made it through that. And the Stoics talk a lot about how these moments of difficulty and adversity, they're not fun, but what you should take out of them is confidence in yourself and, and knowledge about yourself. So I think I'm not just saying like, oh, you survived. So you crushed it. Like you did great. Like when I look back at the last 10 months, I give myself some credit, like, Hey, I'm still standing. You know, I didn't uh, pull my hair out and I didn't lose my mind, but I also go, okay, but where did I fall short? What vulnerabilities in my own life and in my own system did this reveal? And how going forward can I strengthen those spots? Yeah. I want to ask you something about this because I find that like whenever I go on vacation, it takes me like three days to actually like enjoy that I'm on vacation. That's it? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I And I don't know enough about stoicism, but I, I wanted to ask you this question, which I think relates to this. What's going on right now is like, there clearly is this universal message of like stillness. Like, sure. could you, could you guys just stop? Could you stay home? Yeah. Could you not do anything? And it's so uncomfortable. And I find that for people with anxiety, which I'm one of those people, it's like, I'm always racing. I'm always doing, I'm obsessed with the doing and the achieving and all that. And uh, the busy, right? The busy is so glorified. And when I was at this mindful awareness center at UCLA, one of the main like thrusts of it was like, the goal is not actually about joy and happiness. It's like equanimity. And it was like, mm -hmm. what the hell is that? It's like, oh, it means things are as they are and I can be with them as they are. And oh my God, 
Ryan, if I could tell you, I maybe only had 13 seconds total in the four years I was there that felt that, like whatever equanimity is, but it was like the most freeing, awesome feeling to just be with what is and be okay with it in all of its catastrophe and in all of its good and all the mess. And I want to know what, what stoicism has to say and how it relates to this stillness, because boy, do we not want to be still. Well, the Stoics uh, have this word ataraxia, which basically means like being free from disturbances, being free from turbulence. So like being still and, and being good for a second, right? It could be for a second, it could be a minute. That's sort of the, the whole purpose of the philosophy is to get there. You know, I, I have that same feeling. You go on vacation and you're like a week in, you're like, oh, this yeah. is a better way of living. Why can't I be? And it, it, it's like, actually, I thought it took a week it's actually taken 10 months. I, like I thought, hey, if I take a week off, things slow down, I get more connected, I get more creative, I get more at peace, at things that shouldn't be bothering me stop bothering me. It's funny now, you know, 10 months into the pandemic, it's like, oh, this is what you feel like when you really do. Like I was just scratching the surface of, of stillness and peace and a better way of living and a better system of living. It's like, I was under the impression it's like, hey, you know, if you travel a couple times a month, if you have a good routine, you know, if you focus on what matters, you're not too addicted to your devices, you can operate from a place of stillness. And it's like, actually, no, it's 10 months of not going anywhere. It's 10 months of doing the same thing over and over again. I um, I have an Apple Watch and, you know, it like sort of tracks your progress or whatever, when you like beat your goal, it, you know, gives you a streak, right? Like however many days in a row you have. And so I've been working out a lot because of the pandemic, you have more time. And this weird thing happened for me a couple of weeks ago. So sometimes like I'll post on Instagram, it'll be like, Hey, you know, you have a hundred days in a row of beating your goal. And it was like a hundred and that was 120 and it was 130 and that was 150. And a couple, like a week ago, it was like 152. And I was like, I thought I remember doing 152 already. And so like I went back through my phone and it turned out that some, I don't know if it's a glitch or some software update or whatever, but for whatever reason, the count had been weird. It was like 150 instead of doing 151 the next day, it went to like 120. And the, the point of the story is I didn't notice. I didn't notice for over a month that it was losing time, meaning that all the days had blurred together into what I was supposed to be. Like, to me, a, a sign of a flow state is when you lose track of time. But we usually lose track of time for like an hour. Like you're reading a book and you lose time for an hour. It was like, oh, I lost it for 30 consecutive days and I didn't even know what was happening. You know, that took 10 months to get there. And so I think this should be teaching us something about ourselves, about what our lives need to look like, about what we need to be saying no to, about what we need to be saying yes to if we want to actually get to a place of real stillness, not this like superficial stillness. Yeah. And I love what you just brought up about being in the flow state. And clearly you have some experience with it because you're so inspired often to write things and say things that seem to matter to people, right? And so I think that that's so important because often when I'm talking to our listeners, they're just asking me, what do I do? What steps do I take? And tell me what to do. And do I build a funnel? And what do I post? And what hashtag do I use? And I don't do any of those things. I'm the worst marketer, like in terms of those kinds of ways of marketing. And I'm like, you need space 
to know what the inspired action is, right? You need to create the space. And that's, no one knows what I'm talking about unless they've experienced it. Can you help us understand from the standpoint of a best-selling author, a person who has a relationship with coming home to a flow state? What does that mean and why do we need it and how do we get it? Well, so a couple of things I hear from the same people and it's often things like, what software do you use? You know, like what kind of paper do you like? And it's all those things are so preposterously tactical and irrelevant that it, it it's usually a sign to me that that person is going in the wrong direction, right? They're not like, you know, I'm writing hours a day. It, it's it's always like, I need this information before I can start, right, and, right. which is a bad, a bad sign. A couple of things you said, going home to a place of stillness. I mean, for me, one of the breakthroughs was just like, you have to have physical space. This can't be a thing that you do on the couch in your living room. You know, when I hear about people who write in coffee shops, I'm always like, that can't possibly be the most conducive, normal environment to creativity. So for me, it was, you know, setting up an office, a place I go to like a job right? Like an athlete goes to the practice facility, goes to the arena. It's a, it, there's a ritual, there's a sort of a descent you go into to go into a place. So that's a big part of it for me. I think when I think about the flow state, it's like, what's the only thing that I have to be focusing on? So I sort of really zoom in on a specific task. So when I'm writing a book, I'm not thinking about this whole book that I have to do. I'm thinking about a very little part of it that's on today's you know, dock it. And you stack enough of those days on top of each other that you get sort of finished work out of the other side. So it's, you, you think small, but you have to be thinking small about the work, not about the tools. And I think people make that mistake. I think that what's interesting about what you're saying that I find with people is they somehow don't know that they are connected to something, that there will mm -hmm. be an inspired thought. Yeah. Like it's, we miss this portal. There's like this little invisible door to an open-hearted, coherent state. Yeah. And when you're in that space, it's amazing what just comes so easily. It just like gets delivered to you. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And, you know, he talks about sort of habits and structure. But then the third part of the book is about this sort of magical place that you go to that it sort of talks about the idea of transcendence. And that that is a thing like, I'm not saying you can't do successful work from a kind of a conscious place. And certainly, you know, I've done things that have done well that, you know, I was like, here's what I'm trying to do. And I was very conscious and deliberate about it. And it, it was technical. You can do that well enough. But there is a place where the really great work, the work of your life, like the thing that you're more proud of than anything else, is often more of a like, where the hell did that come from? And it came from all the hours of practice. Yeah. It came from all the hours of study and research and thinking. And then it also comes from the routines and the rituals and the systems you set up that make it conducive for that to happen. So to, to go to your point about making space, I mean, like one of the things that I do, like I have a rule with my assistant, there can never be more than three things in my calendar. So like so, some people, like they schedule creative time, which I totally get. For me, it's actually the opposite. I, I think about it in terms of if I have something scheduled, what I'm not doing is writing and creative work. So I actually look at everything I say yes to, like whether it's this podcast or recording my podcast or, you know, a call with my publisher 
publisher or an investment opportunity, all those other things, I have kind of a zero sum relationship with them where like, I feel them like they, they are not an attack. That's too strong of a word, but they're an imposition. They're, <laughs> like, it's like, you got to know when you say yes to do something, you're saying no to something yeah. else. And yeah. if you're a creative person, if you're trying to make music or write a screenplay or a book or code or whatever it is, what you're often saying no to is the main thing that you're supposed to do. Like the craft, like when I'm saying, yes, I'll record this video for someone it might only take three minutes, but you know, it took me 10 minutes to think about it. Right, it took me right. five minutes. All of that was time not spent writing or whatever I should be doing. The other thing is also, if you have kids and family, that's also who you're saying no to. You go, oh, I'll say yes to this. It's not that big a deal. But what you're saying no to is things that are a big deal. I'm so inspired by what you're saying. I want to highlight it with a big old marker. I want everyone who's listening to get that. That's not something that's said enough on this show, Ryan. It's really powerful. That's the default. The default is the space to, to just have that space for whatever is going to come. Like last year in December, I went to Onsite, which is this like awesome sort of, I don't know, therapeutic, amazing retreat for a week. I gave away my phone. You have to give up your phone. That's like, you, you realize that you're such an addict. But I came back from there. I wasn't thinking about work at all. And it was just this deep dive, beautiful psychodrama. Like you do all this cool stuff. And, and I just came back and I just had this idea, which was made to do this. And I said, I just feel called that we're going to show up for our audience and do this program called Made to Do This. Like, what were you made to do? What's your divine assignment? 12 weeks, we do it. And it, there's nothing I've ever done in my life that's been more successful. And it, I like it literally got dropped off. Like it just yeah. got handed to me, you know? So I love, but not enough people talk about it. You know why, Ryan? Because you really are it. That's why. So it's so meta, but it's like you, you're talking about it because you're living it and you have to live it to talk about it because it's part of who you are. So I think well, it's the, important. I really relate to what you're just saying. Like the book that I'm working on now, it's actually a series of books. I was at the beach with my family playing in the sand and it came to me. Like I could have said, I'm too busy. I right. have to work we can't do this vacation. This is a year and a half ago. Can't do this vacation. Instead, I said, no, like family is more important than work. Let's go do this thing. And the gift from the gods or wherever that it came from was that in doing the thing that was not work, I got the benefit of getting a thing that will, has been great for work. And so, yeah, you got to sort of decide what's important. You got itself, you got to put yourself in a position to get lucky like that, I think. But it's tough for people, I think, because you want to sort of consciously be in charge, mm -hmm. but that's not really how it works. It's more of, so Seneca tells this story about Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander the Great is, you know, the world's greatest conqueror. He's going through the, the known world and he comes to this sort of distant foreign land and the, the ruler comes, he says, I heard you're Alexander the Great. I'm willing to give you this part of my kingdom if you leave us alone. And Alexander the Great supposedly says, Alexander the Great does not, travel across the world to get what pieces you're willing to give away. He says, like, I take what I want and I give you the leftovers, you know? And Seneca's point is that that's the role that philosophy has to play in our lives. Philosophy doesn't get the leftover scraps, mm -hmm. like the personal development, uh, self-reflection, stillness. This can't get the few leftover minutes. It's the main thing. 
you know, Marcus Aurelius has an analogy about the similar sort of tension. He goes like, look, if you had a parent and then you had a step parent, you would love them both, but you'd always have sort of an underlying loyalty to your, to your biological parents. He says like the philosophy of these important things, that has to be like the true love. And we can be really good at this other stuff and have a great relationship with it, but nothing can be put above the main thing. I love it. We've been in and out of couples therapy for the whole time. And I don't know, one of our first therapists, she's like, make a list of the things that matter most, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we make this list and you just put it, oh, you know, family and faith and whatever. You sound so great. And yeah. she's like, cool. So now next to it, tell me like how much time you spend on those things, right? Sure. And obviously the answer is very predictable that everybody spends the most time at work and on all the things that are not even on the list or like they're dead last on the list and everything that matters gets the scraps. And you're so right. It's like, why the heck have a philosophy or something you say that you believe in and you spend 10 minutes a year living it, right? Yeah. yeah. The, you know, and this goes to what we're talking about with the Stokes. It's what you do, not what you say. I have a, a print of a quote from Marcus Aurelius on my wall where he says, you know, let's not waste any more time arguing what a good person is. Let's, let's be one. And, right. and I, I heard this thing from Jimmy Carter. I was reading my Jimmy Carter book and he was talking about, and I'm not a religious person, but he was saying, he was like, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, you know, the way that people of different religions are persecuted, he's like, if you were being put on trial for being a Christian, would you be convicted? And I thought, I was like, whoa, okay. So it really doesn't matter what you say. It matters like if they were looking at the impartial record of your decisions. And so that, I mean, that's the struggle that I have with stoicism. It's this is what I believe, this is what I write about. But then you got to go, okay, if all my books disappeared, if we were all put in some randomizer where we took away our names and our identifiers, we were just looking at the actions, where would you fall on the spectrum, right? And I think that's the interesting thing is there's people who've never even heard of stoicism that would be like, a hundred percent practitioner. Yeah. And yeah. then there's people who have written about it their whole lives who wouldn't even land on the spectrum. And then, you know, I, I'd like to think I'm somewhere in the middle, but you want to be striving towards getting the beliefs and the actions in sync with each other. Yeah. I have a few more things to ask you, but before we keep going, let's just thank our sponsor. You might know Glossier for their skincare products and for popularizing the glowy, dewy skin look, but they also create makeup products, body care products, and fragrance. Glossier is always talking to their community about the best ingredients, the best techniques, and dream products, and that's why they're so good at creating products that condense the best of beauty and real routines. I follow their three-step dry skin skincare routine every day, and it's super easy, only involves three products, and makes my skin feel so nourished. It includes the Milky Jelly Cleanser, a really creamy gel face wash that's made with a blend of five skin conditioners. It's super soothing. Then there's also the Priming Moisturizer Rich, a buttery ultra moisturizing cream that's packed with nourishing shea butter, ceramides, and honey. It smells amazing. And then there's the Balm.com, an ultra moisturizing balm that's packed with antioxidants and natural emollients. I love putting this on because it keeps my lips really hydrated throughout the day. Get a three-step routine for any skin type by visiting Glossier.com slash podcast slash dream job. For a limited time, new customers can get 10% off your first order. Certain exclusions apply. That's G-L-O-S-S-I-E-R dot com slash podcast slash dream job. So let me ask you this. So, so many people are struggling with sadness, anxiety, depression. And I heard Tim Ferriss uh, famously talking about stoicism and his own battle with his own mental health. Um, how does it help with 
anxiety or depression or feelings of sadness, real deep feelings of, of all of that heaviness. So we know the Stoics struggled with these things too. I mean, meditations is Marcus Aurelius's private diary. And, you know, he talks about anxiety, he talks about worry, he talks about fear, he talks about sadness because he suffered those things. He wasn't writing these platitudes for other people to practice. He was having a conversation with himself. I think one of the most beautiful lines, he goes, you know, today I escaped my anxiety, he says. And he goes, no, 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 that's not right. He says, I discarded my anxiety because it's inside me. And I, that, that's something that's really stuck with me because I, like you were saying, I, I also have anxiety. It's like, you want to go like, this is causing me anxiety, right? Like the, the pandemic has right, made right, me right. anxious. The fact that I have to get on an airplane tomorrow makes me anxious, right? We, we, we say that the thing is what's making us anxious. It's like, no, 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 the thing is we have the anxiety. We are choosing to have the anxiety. So it's not that it's our fault. I guess what I'm saying is we have a say in it, right? And so that's been a, a big part of it. The, the, the sort of having the discussion with yourself, questioning your own feelings is a big part of it. But the, the thing I bring up to people about the Stoics as far as mental health goes is, you know, people think because the word Stoic in English means has no emotions that the Stoic is the person who stuffs their emotions down and just denies that they exist. And I don't think that's what it's about. And sort of conversely, I think it's the exact opposite of that. But Marcus Rilas talks about, and I think this is something that the pandemic is bringing up for people. Marcus talks, he says, look, we're like soldiers storming a wall. He's like, if you fall, why would it be not okay to ask a comrade for help? You know, basically this idea that like, there's, there's nothing weak about asking for help. That's what you're supposed to do. This is a team effort. And so that's one of the things I think, you know, especially like if you're a first responder, especially if you're a mom, or especially if you're taking care of somebody, you can feel like, hey, I have to put all this weight on myself. That's my obligation. That's my duty. And it, that's true to an extent, but that's not mutually exclusive. That's not incompatible with also asking for help from other people. And whether that's therapy, like you were talking about, whether that's time to yourself, you know, whether it's hiring help, I don't care what it is, you're allowed to ask for help is what I'm saying. I really love that because there is such this like, I'm going to prove that somehow I don't need help or when really maybe there's just like a deep feeling of unworthiness around asking for it. I want to ask you more about your book and, and what you talk about in this book, because I just love talking to you. I could talk to you for hours. I want you to share with us the four stoic virtues. And yeah. I want I want to know more about them and how there are things that we could maybe implement as part of our day-to-day. So the, the four stoic virtues are actually the same cardinal virtues as Christianity. They're sort of bedrock Western civ uh, values, but it's courage, justice, temperance, and wisdom. So basically bravery, self-control, doing the right thing, and sort of learning and, and education. So the Stoics would say that every situation calls from us one or more of those virtues, right? Sometimes it's about being brave, but also you need wisdom to know what to be brave about. Like courage in the abstract is not valuable. It's courage for the right thing, the right cause. It's sort of the idea of self-discipline or moderation is really interesting. You know, Aristotle talks about how you know, courage is actually a midpoint between two extremes. You have cowardice on the one hand, then you also have recklessness on the other, you know, and so courage is the middle ground. And so for the Stoics, these sort of four virtues are kind of in this constant 
dance with each other, this balance with each other, but that there's sort of nothing greater than those things working in concert with each other. Mm. Another thing that you say is, and I want to understand it and unpack it, character is fate. What yeah. does that mean? This is an old Greek expression, which basically just means, you know, your actions are determined by who you are as a person, right? So when we look at certain world leaders and we go, why did they fail so terribly during the pandemic? It's like, should you have been surprised? But, you know, if this is a person who skirts blame, doesn't listen to information that runs contrary to what they want to hear, doesn't care about other people, if this is a person who, you know, likes getting attention, but not doing hard work on and on, of course, they're going to fail under a crisis that requires the opposite of all those things, right? Character is fate. Who you are, the, the, the sort of choices you've made about who you are is the greatest predictor we have of future behavior. So it's not that people can't change, but I guess the way I, I think a Stoic would think about it is like, you can change, but let's just take other people sort of as they are, right? Like if your parents have repeatedly let you down, repeatedly violated your boundaries, don't invite them into your house and expect them not to do that. You know, that's who they are. Oprah has that great line, when people tell you who they are, you should believe them. Yeah. That's what character's fate means. It's so good and it's so true. I think one of the, the hard things is with ourselves, what comes up a lot is a shame. It's, it's the sure. feeling of shame around who we are. And then there's this feeling of like, how on earth can I put myself out there or raise my hand to lead or help when I just feel like, there's a part of me that's so broken and defeat it. It's almost like, how do we overcome that with knowing that? How can we still use that and yet be accepting of what we are and, and be with it rather than, you know, sure. being self-destructive about it? Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a tension there. I mean, I think just because a part of you is broken, doesn't mean that, that it has to remain broken. Right. And so one of the things I've spent, you know, part of the pandemic doing is, is sort of noticing, hey, how are issues that I have, let's say with my parents or with things I was taught as a child, how have those things continued to cause problems for me in my life today? And I was thinking about this, like with my own kids, it's like, how can I possibly expect not to repeat the mistakes of my parents if I'm not actively taking any steps to address those things in my own life. So it's, it's naive to just wish to be different. What are you actually doing about it? You know what I mean? If you're like, hey, what I learned from you know, growing up was X, you hear people say stuff like that and, and you go, sure, but you can learn a different lesson on top of it, right? And, but, but it's when we kind of express this hopelessness or despair about it, that this sort of lack of agency, that of course it doesn't change. Yeah, that's very, very true. In this um, hard season that we're all sort of weathering through, I'm curious what stoicism has to say in terms of like, do we accept what is or do we try to change it or, you know, make a difference? I think, you know, as a, a kid, I was a, a religion major in college and I, I remember loving Buddhist classes, but then also struggling with the idea of like full acceptance. I, I didn't understand how to accept something and yet at the same time want to make it better. And I'm wondering what stoicism says about that. Well, I think for the stoics, the, the big distinction between sort of the big test there is 
is it up to you or not up to you? So the Stoics talked about this as the dichotomy of control. So when you accept it, if you don't have any control over it, right? Because there's nothing you can do but accept it. If it's something that you do have control over, then you're obligated to try to do something about it. So I love you know, that. The, the idea of the serenity prayer and addiction, you know, the, the courage to change the things you can, the, the wisdom to know the things you can't, that's really the, the trick of it. That's the key. It's like, look, you know, no amount of yelling at the weather changes the weather, but you can decide to do something about belly fat. You know what I mean? Like you can decide to focus on it and work on the parts of it that are up to you. And, and this is true also in life. It's like, look, I work like hell on a book that I write. I work like hell to market it. But then I know at a certain point, it leaves my hands and I don't control what other people think of it. I don't control, you know, ultimately how many copies it sells. I don't control whether the trucks deliver it on time. Like all of that, you have to cultivate some level of Zen about because it's not just that it's going to make you unhappy. It's that the energy you're spending on the parts of it that are not up to you is energy you're not spending on the part. Like, like I remember in, in the 2016 election, I don't think this is a political point, but Obama was saying something about Donald Trump and the crowd booed, like they booed Donald Trump. And Obama said, don't boo, vote, right? Like, like having an opinion about things is great, but only if you take action based on that opinion. And I think we, we sort of live in a time where people have really strong opinions, they have really strong desires or wants, politically, socially, personally, financially, whatever, but if it's not translated into the domain of action, I mean, you're just wasting your time. Right. I remember in Austin, a few years ago, there had been a, a ballot proposition to ban ride sharing companies. They were trying, they were essentially trying to ban Uber and Lyft, which I thought was ridiculous. But there was this, it was like a midterm election about this thing. And the voter turnout was like preposterously low, like nobody voted. And as a result, ride sharing was banned. And I remember getting invited to a Facebook petition the next day that was like, sign this petition and let's all get together in March, you know, or, wh or whatever about ride sharing. And it was like, if only yesterday there had been an opportunity for you to voice <laughs> your opinion about this in a way that would make a difference. And I, to me, that sort of encapsulated where we are as a society, which is like people will oh do this God. nonsense online activism, but driving to a polling station and voting, you know, whatever inconvenience is inherent in that they didn't want to do. And, and that's, I think, where we if are. If only yesterday there was an opportunity. I love yes. that line. Um, let me ask you about this, which is directly related to what you were just saying in terms of what we can control and what we can't. I find that my audience, and I, I know that I've been a part of this as well, sometimes we are so wanting to control the result of something, sure. right? So it's like, I'm possibly going to start a podcast, but only if I know that it's going to work yes. out and if it fails and how will I live with that? Or I already, I did one thing. I posted one thing on Instagram and nobody liked it. So what does that mean? And, and I find this whole relationship with the doing and then the, the need for the ROI and the results, like it really jams up the whole process. So what do you have to say about it? Especially, I think once you've been a bestseller, author and you've gotten a certain like thing, you know, how do you not want that result and sort of play to the result more than the process? What's interesting. So on the, on the one hand, the results are nice, right? Like if you sell a lot of books, there's a chance, you know, it's usually correlated with 
getting money for that thing, right? So I'm not sitting here going like, oh, it's totally meaningless to, to do it. But my first book, The Obstacle is the Way It Came Out, my first book on Stoicism, The Obstacle is the Way It Came Out in 2014. And it never hit a bestseller list. We weren't sure why, it just didn't. Five years later, it hit number one for the, not just the first time for hitting number one, but the first time it, it had hit a list. And I remember- I didn't I realize was, that. Oh my God. I was mowing my lawn when I got a call from my agent to say that it happened. And I remember sort of, I'd obviously wanted that moment to happen. I was disappointed the week the book came out and it didn't happen. So I don't know exactly what I thought it would be like hearing it, but it was also totally meaningless. Do you know what I mean? Like, first off, I still had to finish mowing my lawn. And second, like, it didn't change my life really in any way. The accomplishment of having written a book that had impact in the world, that was a result that was nice. The recognition for said thing was so beyond anticlimactic, I really can't even describe it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and so I think there's two things with the results. So one, it's sort of realizing like, hey, you got to know, like doing great stuff for the intrinsic reasons of doing great stuff, that's worthy. But the other thing that you see happen is like, so somebody that'll happen, they'll hit number one or they win a Grammy or they win a million dollars in the lottery or they, whatever, you get the thing you wanted and you experience that anticlimactic sort of letdown. That is actually a really powerful moment. Like it was very freeing for me to go, oh, hitting number one doesn't actually matter. It pales in comparison to the, the joy of doing the thing. It has an immense gift, right? It's totally freeing. But a lot of people reject that gift. So they'll be standing on the podium accepting a world championship or a gold medal. And they don't go, oh, man, this feels a little weird. Maybe I told myself that I needed this thing to feel good about myself. And actually, that wasn't true. What they say is, oh, I need to do this again. Like wow. they get, oh, I need the most championships in history. You know, like the thing in the social network, a million dollars is cool. Ah, it's a billion dollars. You know what I mean? You, we move the goalposts oh. and that is a recipe for unhappiness and disappointment. And it's an even bigger lie. That's so important what you just said. One of the last things here is along the lines of all of this, you know, my audience, one of the things that comes up every single day is this feeling of imposter syndrome, which you hear so much about. And I feel like a fraud. And I'm thinking about you writing a book about these people who had so much to say, right? And they're like beloved. And, and I'm just thinking, how does Ryan allow himself the permission to be like, I have something to say about this, right? Like it's not nothing right. to do that. And, and then what you've done over and over again has made a huge difference for people, right? And it, you have an audience who wants to hear it from you. And yet I think it was a, a courageous ocean to cross within yourself to believe like, you know what? I can put myself within the authors that's talking about such a topic, how did you overcome any of those battles within yourself? If, did you have imposter syndrome? If you did, how'd you get over it? If you didn't, why? I think one of the ways you get through imposter syndrome is by sort of looking at it almost like hyper objectively. So it, it's like, you know, people, I'm afraid of being found out. What if they know? And it's like, nobody's thinking about you at all. They don't care. Um, yes. Nobody cares about you at all. Uh, and, oh, and so sort of realizing that is actually like sort of quite freeing. Like, you know, it's like the Stoics are dead. 
you know, who cares, right? Like, you know, I'm not intimidated by their tradition. I'm, I'm just trying to do the best that I can with, you know, what I'm capable of doing. So I think sort of realizing that, that you're kind of making up in your head, a level of sort of some stakes that aren't actually there is, is really important. And, and look, different groups sort of internalize this in a certain way. I mean, there's kind of like an entitlement or a, there's like an unearned confidence, as we say, sort of with like straight white guys, since we've just sort of ruled history for all of time. There's just this like, well, of course, I'm, I look like them. Why shouldn't I be able to do it? And so I'm not discounting that. I would just say to people who are intimidated, like, well, I've never seen someone like me do something like this. If you really look up close at the people who are doing it, it should be very reassuring. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's say the Senate. The Senate is is supposedly the most exclusive club in the world, right? It's a hundred people are in this thing. And then you you sort of you look at some of these senators and you're like, man, that guy's like a moron. Not even like I disagree with him politically, but like <laughs> even if I did agree, and it's almost usually a white dude, but it's like, oh, wow, these people are clowns. Really have no idea what they're talking about. So yes, there's a prestige there and it's hard. I'm not saying that magically makes it easy. Like I never went to an Ivy League school. So I always sort of met, made up in my head, like I'm not good enough to go to an Ivy League school. And sure, objectively, my high school grades weren't good enough to get me into one. But there was something freeing, you know, meeting a number of people who've gone to Harvard and Yale. And you're like, oh, there's nothing that magical or special or intimidating about them. And if you want to do it, you can do it. Marcus really says, if it's humanly possible, you have to know that you're capable of doing it. And, and so I think if you go like, hey, look, who's the dumbest person to do this thing? And chances are you're probably as capable or more capable than that person. I love it. All of that we should just put on repeat. And I love the beginning of it too, which is like, you're making up some imaginary stakes. Like no one really cares about you. So write anything, like no one cares that much. Anyways, one of the things I'm curious about. So this idea of like an upper limit, right? This idea of like, you have a set point of a cappiness. So I'm curious what stoicism says about this, because yeah. I find is that joy is hard for me. Like, um, I kind of like a good challenge, but like when there's actually something to receive and like, it's time to really allow myself, it's like a, there's like a shutdown valve, right? Sure. Um, what does stoicism have to say about joy and celebration and all of that? To be perfectly honest, I would say not enough. And it's something I've sort of struggled with in my own writing about it, but there's a great line from Epicurus, who's, who's maybe a happier philosopher than, than some of the stoics, but you know, he says there will never be enough for the man whom enough is too little. And so your, your point about being a set point or, or sort of being an upper limit, you know, oftentimes we tell ourselves like, hey, if I do X, then I'll be happy. If I get X, then I'll be happy. I can feel joy once I blank, 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 blank. And I think the idea of sort of practicing some gratitude or appreciation for what you have while you have it is a way to sort of get to that joy or appreciation. So to bring this back to where we started about stillness, it's like, this is it. Like, that's the thing I try to say to myself, sort of a mantra, like, this is it, or this is enough. Like everything else is extra, but like whatever you're doing right now, it's going for a walk with your kids or hanging out on the couch or driving your car. Like, this is it. This isn't all a means to an end, you know, like this is just is. And if you can sort of be in that place, you can experience, I think, joy and gratitude more easily. Mm. Everything you said, I just feel like that's such oxygen because I do feel like that kind of like, you know, 
shines a light on the truth, which is, I do always feel like it's a means to something else. And I wonder what that is. I heard Brene Brown talking about how in her research, she found that joy is the most vulnerable emotion. Sure. And so we, we'd rather go into the future or the past because it's very vulnerable to, to stay in that spot, which I think is interesting. It's what do you think about that? I saw a study once that was saying like young people associate happiness with accomplishment, but as you get older, it becomes more correlated with contentment. And so I think what it is, is you think it's about accomplishment and you fall for that enough times that eventually you get older and you're like, oh, that's not how it works. I can just be happy right now with what I have. And so I think the sooner you can get to that realization, the more happiness you're going to have. Yeah, it goes back full circle to the beginning of the conversation, which is then you're sitting there with yourself and there often lies just like an inherent sadness or an emptiness or some feeling, which you are hoping that the next thing you do will somehow take that away. And it never does. It never does. Everything you need, you already have. That's not to say you can't have extra stuff, but everything you need, you already have. So what do you do when you're sitting there and you're so generous to share that, you know, because people will look at you and be like, he would never feel that. He's a best-selling author. He has a beautiful family. He's this, he's that. When you feel that feeling, if you ever do, and you're like, oh, there it is that like, I'm present, everything's fine. And yet there's this sadness or an emptiness or whatever. So what do you do with that feeling or what thought maybe helps you to sit there longer? Well, I, I, I think one of the most powerful exercises in stoicism is just like the reminder that you're going to die. Like, just like that life is very fragile and that you don't know how long you're going to be on this planet. And you go, if I'm going to die, what does this thing I'm chasing even matter? Right? So like, why not be alive? Like right now, why not experience everything that you have right now as, as if it's everything, as if it's full, rather than be focusing on what more that you need. Mm-hmm. So good. So with that, tell us where we can buy the book. Tell us where we can find you and the Daily yeah. Stoic and everything else. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, you can, you can get Lives of the Stoics everywhere books are sold. If you're interested in Stoicism, we do a, a free email every day uh, at dailystoic.com. And then I do a daily podcast about Stoicism every day as well. I don't think you have enough to do. I don't. I got some free time. Thank you for being here, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, really. Such a nourishing, yummy conversation. Thanks for having me. That was such a fascinating conversation. I always learn so much when I talk to Ryan. Here are the takeaways. Number one, you can read and learn all you want, but then you have to let the adversity of life train you. You get better the more reps you have. Number two, if you're alive right now, you made it. The moments of difficulty aren't fun, but what you can take from them is confidence and knowledge in yourself. Give yourself credit for still standing. Number three, don't give your personal development the leftover minutes. Make it the main priority. Number four, having an opinion is great, but only when you take action on it. Number five, recognition pales in comparison to the accomplishment of making an impact. Number six, there's a freedom in knowing that no one really cares about you at all. Number seven, do the best you can with what you're capable of doing. If it's humanly possible, you have to know that you're capable of doing it. And number eight, this is it. Everything you need, you already have. Life is so fragile, so why not be alive right now? Experience all you fully have instead of focusing on what you think you need. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for being here. I know with certainty that you have a million other things that you could be doing. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because there's so many good episodes coming out and I don't want you to miss it. And I would just love it 
If you haven't done so yet, if you would just go ahead and leave us a review, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because it really means a lot to me. Often I will go and I will read the reviews and it's just the sweetest thing in the world. Not only that, but it helps other people find the show. There's a whole algorithm to it. So I'd really appreciate it. If the show has touched your heart, please go ahead and leave a review. And before we hop off, I'm just curious if you learned something today that you feel like somebody else would benefit from. Can you think of one person who would find this helpful? If so, email them the episode, text them the link and post about the show in your Instagram and tag me at kathy.heller. And while you're there, come on over to my Instagram and come find the ninth day of the 12 days of giveaways because there's some amazing stuff I'm giving away today and I'll be giving away more stuff until Christmas. So come on and join me. I love you guys. I'll leave you with my Christmas song that I wrote, Together We Make Christmas, and I'll talk to you guys on Thursday. The podcast is a production of Authentic. For more info on advertising in this show, visit AuthenticShows.com. Everywhere it's December, from New York City to Budapest, we are all the same on Santa's list. The streets are all filled with carols, deck the halls in every language you can hear the joy in everything we do so light it up light it up all around the world pass it on pass it on every boy and girl spread the love spread the happy Joy.